can open up your Bibles again to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to finish the section that we began last week. Looking at verses 21 through 25. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. This is looking, of course, at the example of Christ. The example of Christ. And we know that examples are very important to us. Examples are really crucial. They're very shaping to us in our, in our lives. We look to these ideals, these th- people that we want to follow, and those whom we follow shape and influence us in proto- profound ways. They shape our perceptions, our attitudes, our characters, and our lives. This is why choosing friends and our companions is very important, isn't it? We try to teach that to our children, to choose your friends wisely because your friends, whether you intend so or not, are going to be an influence on you. And so scripture gives us many warnings about that. Negatively, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, you'll remember this, bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 22 says this, do not associate with a man given to anger. Or go out with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. You hang around an angry person, somebody quick to explode, they're hot-headed, then those are going to be characteristics that influence you. God warned his people not to intermingle with the surrounding nations because they would be a negative influence. He says in Deuteronomy 7.4, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. He warns in Hebrews, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through and falling short of the same example of disobedience as those who fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So there's negative examples. There's also positive examples. James 5.10, just listen as I read some of these, says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. We're to look at them, follow their example of perseverance. Philippians 3.17 says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Last one, 2 Timothy. Paul, writing to this young son in the faith, tells him this, and Paul, near at the end of his life, gives these words. He says, Now you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Timothy was weak. He was in danger of failing to be robustly engaged in the ministry that God had committed to him. And so Paul says, follow my example. By looking at my example, by looking at my life, by looking at my teaching, you will find strength to be faithful in your ministry. And yet with many worthy examples, and we could go on and on, that God has given to us, none compares to the God-man, the perfect embodiment, the perfect demonstration of the image of God in man. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is our model. He provides for us the right motivation and the mandate for righteousness in this world. And particularly, as Peter is going to point us to here, for righteous suffering. And that's what we'll finish looking at this morning. So read with me this passage, and then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 21 of 1 Peter. 
Actually, let's begin in verse 20. He says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Look back at verse 21. And we noted first that Christ is our model. Christ provides the pattern of righteousness. He provides the pattern of suffering for believers, for us, for the church. Christ is the perfect example for us, for all men, really. He's the perfect completeness, as we said, of humanity. He transcends every cultural, ethnic, or social bound, and he stands as the perfect man. The perfect man whom all can look to no matter where they are geographically, no matter where what their station is in life, and see the perfect example of what it means to embody obedience to God and love to God and everything that we should be as humans made in his image. And in every way, then, Scripture also points us to Christ as the means, as there is the goal of our sanctification. We are saved by Christ's life, we are saved by his death, by his resurrection. We are also pointed to Christ to say, those who are in him, those who are in union with him, are then to be conformed to his image. He is the perfect expression of what we are to be as redeemed humanity in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just read to you a few verses that you're familiar with that emphasize that. Don't turn there, I'm just going to read them. 1 John 3, 2 through 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself just as he is pure. John 13. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In every way, the point is simply being made that Christ is the example. He is the one who has gone before us. He showed us what does it look like to live in obedience to God. What does it look like to live in perfect submission to the will of the Father? And in this case, particularly of 1 Peter, what does it look like to suffer unjustly at the hands of the ungodly in perfect faith in God? And we noted that he's able to be this example because of his full humanity. Though God in every way, though fully sharing in the divine nature as the eternal son of God, he clothed himself in humanity. He fully wrapped himself in the full experience of humanity with all of its limitations and all of its weaknesses except without sin, that he might live as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit in perfect obedience to the Father and be our mediator and example in every way. 
He obeyed for us as a man, the God-man, but as a man. Although the eternal Son, though the single person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son lived in perfect obedience to the Father as a man and in the power of the Spirit. In this way, he could be our perfect substitute. He could be our perfect mediator. He could be our perfect sacrifice for the sins of men in his death and his perfect example in his service and in his submission to the will of God in his suffering. And this perfect submission was demonstrated in verse 22 by his sinless character revealed first here in what Peter says is his speech that was without blame. He says in verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When trials come, when pressures come, when we suffer, when we're squeezed as it were, the sponge of our heart becomes revealed. It, we tend to sin when we're, when we're tired and when we're at our weakest or experiencing the most difficult test. What's really in our heart tends to come out then. With Christ experiencing the greatest amount of suffering, with experiencing the greatest trial, the greatest contest that anyone could ever experience as a man, what came out of his heart was not sin, was not in any way disobedience, but his perfect sinless righteousness. He did not sin with his mouth. As James reminds us, that is a perfect man. That is the mark of maturity. And no man ever has that mark perfectly, but Christ did. Why? Because he was sinless in every way. And to say that he did not sin with his mouth, as we noted, is not simply to say that he restrained his words while inside fuming and bitter and harboring hatred towards his persecutors. But instead, his failure to sin with his mouth demonstrated that internally, in every way, in his attitude, in his perception, in his motive, in every way, he was perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. Not only was his outer life without sin and, able, and unable to be accused, his inner life was without sin, without the slightest hint of sin. He had perfect conformity to the love of God and glad submission to the will of the Father. And it was displayed in his perfect meekness. Verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He was completely free of a hard attitude that sought personal vengeance or retribution on those who persecuted him. One of the greatest temptations we have when being wronged is to retaliate, is to express some kind of vengeance. To let them know our hatred or our disappointment or our rejection of them for the way that we have been treated. This was not found in Christ. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. At no point did he exact his own revengeance or take vengeance into his own hand. He was the perfect embodiment then of the instruction that Paul gives us in Romans 12. Just listen. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He embodied that perfectly. He embodied that without sin. He is the example to us of what that looks like to be obedient to the Lord in that area. 
And remember, he's saying this to slaves. This is primarily his initial audience would be those who are suffering at the hands of unrighteousness, both unrighteous government. Remember, they're scattered abroad. And particularly the slaves who are bearing under unrighteous suffering from masters, those who have an ownership over them and who mistreat them in a variety of ways. And he says this finds favor with God if you bear up under this kind of suffering. If you do good and suffer for it, it finds favor with God. Why? Because it's a reflection of Christ's own suffering. Now that moves us into a second question, which we'll look at this morning. What were the inward realities of Christ's heart and his mind that enabled him to endure such hostilities? What is the inner spiritual life? What is it that he's actually trusting in? What enables him to live the way that he did, to suffer the way that he did? Because he's our example, not merely in his behavior, but in his commitment to the Father. Not only by what he did, but how and why he did what he did. And so here's the second point, the motivation. The first was Christ as our model. Here is Christ as the motivation. Christ's example demonstrates the inner motive of submission. Look at the last part of verse 23, the last part of verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He placed his life, his trust completely in the Father. The eternal divine Son in in the full weakness and limitations and strength of his humanity entrusted himself and his entire life to the Father. This idea of entrusted is that of handing over, of giving over. That's a basic idea of it. It's translated betrayal in other places, whereas Judas handed over, he betrayed Jesus, he gave him over into the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. Here that idea in a positive sense is Jesus entrusted himself, he handed his life over completely to the care of the Father. He completely and comprehensively entrusted every detail of his life and of his suffering and of his passion to the Father. Now, this is demonstrated throughout his entire life. As I mentioned, I think, last week, the grammar emphasizes here not merely that he did that one time, but that this was the continual pattern of his life. His entire life in every detail was a demonstration of his complete trust in the Father. In other words, these, these heroic moments of trust don't come out of a vacuum. They don't come out of nowhere. They are, they are the fruit of a life that is lived in every moment, in every day, in every hour, in every week, in every month to a, in pursuit of the obedience of God. And so it was with Christ and without fail. Jesus said in John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came that he might live in perfect obedience to the Father. And of course, the greatest place this was displayed was in the garden. If this cup could pass fund me, let it do so, Father. But he says, your will be done. Your will be done. The greatest demonstration of his submission to the Father is what is here being focused on by Peter, namely his submission to his work as mediator ultimately on the cross and bearing our sin. We'll look at that a bit later. But I want to consider first several areas of this trust and and answer this question. What exactly was he trusting the Father for? 
What exactly did this entrusting his life to the Father entail? What does it involve for us? Let me mention several points here. First is this. He trusted in the Father's love. He trusted in the Father's love. How was he able to endure that kind of suffering, that kind of rejection? Because he was secure, unshakably secure in the love of the Father for him. And this is particularly striking when we considered how his suffering appeared to others, how it appeared to the world around him, how it appeared as he was being ridiculed by his enemies, how it appeared when he was suffering what looked like his being forsaken by God, because he was in appearance to others, all of those things. But in this way and in this appearance, his life not only in his suffering in every detail, but particularly in his suffering, conformed in every way to Scripture. Listen to Isaiah 53, which is the background of this passage in 1 Peter. We let it read it in our, its entirety last week, but listen to verse 3, Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried, yet... We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, which is to say our estimation of his suffering was that God's displeasure was on him, that God had forsaken him. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. In other words, the estimation of those looking at the suffering of Christ was the opposite of what the reality was. He appeared forsaken by men. He was ridiculed as forsaken by God. But anything, but that was not the truth. His his enemies taunted him with that very appearance. Listen to Matthew 27. I'm just going to read this, just listen. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, They stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him, and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put on his own garments and led him away to crucify him." And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, he was numbered with transgressors. And those passing by, as he hung there in shame, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same 
words. So when he's suffering, in his suffering, he appears to be forsaken of God. This forsakenness of God would appear by circumstances to be true with the abandonment of his friends, the betrayal by his closest, by his, one of his closest companions, the rejection of the nation, and here enduring the most scornful ridicule by men. So he embodied in this sense the fullest possible extent of the kind of appearance of being forsaken of God. The suffering of the righteous at the hands of the ungodly. And God's people have known this kind of suffering throughout their history. The psalmist as well felt forsaken by God. He felt as if God were distant and left him to suffer alone. Psalm 42.3 My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Verse 10 is a shattering of my bones. My adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? And this is a form of that theodicy. Remember, that is the the area of discussion that says in attacks against God, why is there suffering in the world? It must then mean that God is not sovereign or God is not good. And so when God's people suffer, the unrighteous look at that and go, well, your God clearly does not exist. If your God does exist, he is not sovereign as you claim. Or if he is sovereign as you claim, he is not good. Or else, why would you be suffering? Forget your God. They make a mockery of him. The nations did that to Israel. Psalm 79.10. Where is your God, they say in their persecution or in their exile. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. When we remembered Zion... Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, "Sing Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Commenting on this, Calvin said, Well, we may be certain that the Israelites were treated with cruel severity under the barbarous tyranny to which they were subjected. This is when they were in exile and captivity. And the worst affliction of all was that their conquerors reproachfully insulted them and even mocked them, their design being less to wound the hearts of the miserable exiles than to cast blasphemies upon their God. So what is the point of this? It is to say that by appearance sake, in every way, when God's people suffer, when Christ suffered, who is our example... It has the appearance and sometimes for God's people even the feeling of being forsaken by God. And yet never was Christ separated from the love of God, the love of the Father, and he knew that. And that enabled him to endure it. And whatever the righteous have suffered, no human being has ever suffered to the degree of Christ. No one has ever felt this pain more deeply than Christ, because Christ alone was holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. And yet, being the Holy One of God, the Righteous One of God, Him who had no sin, He yet bore in His body, as Peter will say later, the full weight of the curse of the law, the full burden of God's hatred for our sin, the consequence for our guilt. No one can know, even in the smallest measure, hardly, the full weight of the depth of the anguish he felt when he cried out in the midst of his darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
echoing the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22. A depth that though that psalmist felt it in reality was barely a portion of what the Son of God felt as our substitute on the cross as he bore our sins on the tree. But he was not forsaken. He was not forsaken. In fact, in fact, his suffering and what appeared to to be his being forsaken by God was in fact, in reality, the greatest demonstration of his love for God and the Father glorifying himself and the Son. It was a demonstration of his perfect submission and obedience to the Father. There his perfect humanity was on display, but he knew, he knew that he was secure in the Father's love. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Why was he able to entrust himself to the Father so perfectly? Because he knew that though it appeared he was forsaken, he was not. And in fact, his laying down his life to endure this at the hands of the ungodly, ultimately even at the hands of the Father when the stroke was laid on him for our sin, that he was in fact secure in the Father's love. The suffering did not invalidate the Father's love. In fact, it was his confidence in the Father's love that enabled him to endure the suffering. And it's the same for us. And in that way, he can be our example. Our suffering does not invalidate God's love for us. It does not invalidate the reality of his care and his mercy and his grace to us in Christ. In fact, when we suffer in the example of Christ, we come to know God's love in a way that we otherwise couldn't. And not only this, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us for why we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. As we patiently endure in obedience to the Father, the suffering that he brings, When we respond in faith, our character is matured, our hope is strengthened, and we know by the ministry of the Spirit of God within his own children, to a greater degree, the love that God has for us in Christ. It's paradoxical, but it's true. So how was he able to entrust himself? What was the inner reality of his life? First of all, he was secure. He understood that in his suffering, he was never separated from the love of the Father. And so he was able to lay his life down in confidence. Let me give you a second part of the inner reality of Christ. He entrusted himself to the Father's wisdom. To the Father's wisdom. Namely, that his suffering was necessary in shaping him to be the perfect mediator and substitute for us. He knew that he could not be our perfect substitute and mediator apart from what he endured in suffering. Listen to two verses. Making this point, Hebrews 2.10. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. His obedient suffering proved and perfected 
his sinless character to be our perfect mediator. Now, we get confused sometimes when we hear that word perfected, right? How could he be perfected if he had no sin? He's not saying here that he was perfected in a, in a way that we might be perfected at times in terms of trials ridding us of the dross of sin in our life. He was perfected in this way, in that his sinlessness and his perfect obedience to the Father was tested to the farthest possible human degree, and yet he was never found to be wanting but perfect and absolute in his obedience. And in that way, he was able to stand in our stead and be our substitute, fulfilling the will of the Father to its greatest possible degree within humanity. That's what he means. That's how he was made perfect. By pro- not by ridding of sin, but in fact, proving his being without sin and his perfect obedience to the farthest possible extent it could be displayed within humanity. And that was in the midst of the suffering. And it was also that he might become, through his suffering, a sympathetic high priest. Sympathy that he would have now in a new way with our weakness. And so that in Hebrews 4.16, we may draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in a similar way, we follow that example. Our submission and suffering in obedience proves our faith. It proves the reality of Christ's life in us. Remember, he said this, you have been distressed in verse 6 of chapter 1. You've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does the suffering do? It proves the reality of his life in us. It proves our faith. It proves it. And it perfects us. It brings about a maturity and a depth that enables us to minister to others with greater sympathy. It enables us to better serve when we suffer, when we endure it willingly and in submission to the Father. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, that it enables us to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So that when you walk obediently through suffering, which is that context, then you experience and realize a certain comfort of the Spirit within your own life. And then as you come through the other side or even in the midst of it, you're able to minister that same kind of comfort and encouragement to others. A kind of comfort that never could have been given had it not been through your own experience of suffering. So when experienced with a heart submitted to Christ, a confident trust in him, it produces God's perfecting work in us. It humbles us. It strips us of hidden or not so hidden pride. It produces in us greater compassion for others and an ability to comfort them. It proves our faith to ourselves and to the watching world. It causes us to be weaned from a love of this world and to more intensely think of and long for the kingdom of God and the righteousness that is ours and is to be revealed. He does all of these things in our hearts through suffering. Let me give a third. I'm going to move rather quickly here. He trusted that God's justice would be brought in its own time. Look again in what he says in verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to who? To him who judges righteously. To him who judges righteously. Now, there's a, there's a certain irony in this with Christ. 
And the irony is this, that Christ is entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and yet he is aware and knows and is, in fact, the one who will be the executor of God's just righteousness on the earth. We read it this morning in 2 Thessalonians 1. In John 5, 22, Jesus said to those listening, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. The Father doesn't judge anyone. He's given that to the Son. Revelation 6, we won't read all of these. Men yell, hide us from the wrath of who? The Father and the Son as they execute their judgment on the earth. But what it is, is this. Christ perfectly submitted to the suffering that he endured and waited for the Father's timing to bring about final justice on the earth. It's a justice that would come, but it would come in the time that was established by the Father. And the Son, in his humanity, in his suffering, waited. Acts 10, 17, excuse me, 31 or 30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is that man? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knew that all will be set right that is now crooked. Perfect justice will be established where injustice reigns. He was able then to rest fully in this knowledge and listen to this without conflict of soul. Without conflict of soul. He rested perfectly in the knowledge that righteousness would come right now. His fulfilling the will of the Father was to endure suffering and even to be able to hang on the cross and say to those who were executing this injustice against him, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Just the opposite of personal vengeance, just the opposite of personal hatred towards his tormentors, he had towards them a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion. Even one of those robbers that eventually turned, he said, you will be with me in paradise. And so we are not to take vengeance. And we are to model and can, by his spirit in us, the same persevering patience in the midst of doing good while suffering unrighteousness, not harboring bitterness in our hearts. Because God will do a far better job establishing justice in the world. He doesn't need vigilantes And the ungodly only have a temporary authority given to them by God. In other words, the ungodly aren't going to have the upper hand forever, and the righteous know this. In the end, God will hold the unrepentant accountable for their injustice. Joe covered this in Psalm chapter 1. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. The way of the wicked will perish. And it's this knowledge that enabled Christ and enables his children to endure. Listen to what one commentator, Tom Schreiner, said on this. He captured this well. The scriptures nowhere teach that believers can refrain from retaliation because they become stoics in suffering. In other words, just try to distance themselves from all emotion. Try to separate themselves from any real experience of the pain. That's not how we do it. We don't become stoics in suffering and put on a brave face. Rather, believers triumph over evil because they trust that God will vindicate them and judge their enemies, putting everything right in the world. Let me just give you a couple of examples. I have to go quickly because I want to finish here. But listen to Jeremiah and Jeremiah 11. It's a parallel passage to this. Just listen. Verse 18. This faithful prophet says this. 
Moreover, the Lord made it known to me, and I knew it. Then you showed me their deeds, and I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised plots against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off, the, cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. In other words, essentially, he walked into a trap that he wasn't expecting, and he was persecuted. And he prays, but O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 73. And this is, of course, throughout Scripture, and particularly the Psalms in the Old Testament. But listen to this. In Psalm 73, he was jealous of those who were prosperity. He was jealous and envious of the wicked who seemed to flaunt around wearing pride like a necklace and never have any consequence to their proud and arrogant mockery of God. And it bothered him deeply. He says later, I became like an animal. But then he said this, listen to the change. After lamenting the way the wicked walk, He says this, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Like, why are the righteous suffering and the wicked seem to live with such ease? Why is that? This is what changed his thinking. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived therein. Surely you set them in slippery places, and you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. It was his knowledge that there was an end to those who rebelled against God that he was spared from, that they would not be spared from. And when we don't see this justice in the present, though, we can, we can have that strange struggle of the psalmist. Remember I mentioned last week, Huang Yang, I might be pronouncing that wrong. She's a, she's a Chinese Christian. She also does a lot of humanitarian work. This is uh, what an interviewer said of her in one of her weak moments. It says, yet one of her biggest sorrows in the th- is the theft of her motherhood because she had been in and out of prison. She had been suffered at the hand of the government. She has miscarried two babies as a result of government beatings. She says that violence and ovarian cancer have left her barren. At times, it leads her to question the justice of God. If you do evil in China, the government reveres you. If you do good, it suppresses and persecutes you. Sounds like First Peter, doesn't it? Huang said, I believe the Chinese government has reached an all-time low. There's no way that Xi will Jinping off will get off for demolishing crosses and destroying churches. Her voice quavered, quivered, and tears fell from her eyes as she added, If God lets him get away with it, I do not think I can believe in this God anymore. In other words, if I don't see the justice in before my eyes, how can I believe that God is just? We feel that way sometimes. When injustice rises against us and we cannot see the righteous judgment of God in the present, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing in him who judges righteously. Now, in the end, it seems that this this dear sister in the Lord understood it. The article ended with these words of her. She says, I'm not afraid to die. I believe in God. 
I believe God has planned everything in my life, Huang said. Perhaps God sees this injustice, and he gave each Christian different levels of wisdom and courage, different amounts of blessing. Maybe God gave me the ability to withstand these trials. Maybe that's the blessing that he bestowed on me. And we would agree with her. And we don't have an answer for our suffering so often. Of course, the suffering that's a direct consequence of our faith in Christ, we do. It's what happens at the hands of an unrighteous world. D.A. Carson notes this, though. I think a helpful statement. When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. But will there also be faith? Yes, if our attention is focused more on the cross and on the God of the cross than the suffering itself. And so that's what Peter points us to. He entrusted himself to the Father and to him who judges righteously. Let me mention quickly a couple other points. He desired the glory of God in his suffering. How was he able to suffer? Because ultimately he desired the glory of the Father. Again, let me just read a couple of texts here. Verse 27 of John 12. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Again, sounds like First Peter. For this purpose you have been called. Jesus said, for this purpose I've come to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. How was he going to glorify his name? He was going to glorify his name ultimately through Christ's obedient suffering on the cross. And praying to the Father later, Just before the betrayal, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He trusted that in his suffering, the Father would ultimately be glorified. Through his suffering, the Father would be glorified. And he was glorified. He was glorified. In many ways... The display of his righteousness, the display of his justice, the display of his goodness, of his grace, of his wrath, of his faithfulness, and his glory displayed in bringing many sons to glory, the glory that will be displayed in the age to come. So our submission then in suffering has a particular eye and concern for the glory of God and the worthiness of Christ to be manifested in this, listen, Our willingness to suffer without complaint, without vengeance, obedience to our master who has not only redeemed us, but gone before us to give us an example to follow. Five. He had confident hope that the father would bring about all he promised. He knew there was a kingdom and a glory coming. He knew that there was a people given to him. He knew that he was providing redemption through his sacrifice that would bring many sons to glory. And the sons he would bring to glory would gaze on his glory forever. That was his hope in John 17. Let me just go quickly here. It's the same trust in the promises of God that enables us to suffer as well. Which means, beloved, why we need to know the promises of God. Listen to what he says at the end of 1 Peter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We know not only that God will bring about a justice that is perfect, not only that God will uphold his standard of righteousness, 
but that God will bring salvation. He's promised it to us. He's affirmed it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we trust in this promise. We trust in this promise. Paul said, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It's a trustworthy statement, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Which, beloved, is not an encouragement that despite our ungodliness and unbelief and belief in sin, that God will never leave us, though that's true. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that even if God is denied, he will not deny himself, and he will hold all accountable. That's the point there. The point here, though, however, is this that it is trust in the promises of God that enables us to endure. It's trust and confidence in the promises of God. Right now, as the church, we are considered the weak things of the world, the ignoble things of the world, the things to be despised. When the world looks at us, they see fools, ignorant, despised, in some cases forsaken. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4, To this present hour, and this is the beloved apostle, To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. We toil, working with our hands. We're reviled. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. When we we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. That's what you are to the world. But in reality, we are the inheritors of all things. He said earlier that all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Christ is the inheritor of all things and we in Christ are inheritors with him as his blood-bought children. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The very ending of this promise Revelation 21, 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. So we understand as Christians there's a cross and then there's a crown. This is the pattern of redemption. First suffering, suffering, first repentance, first seeking his kingdom, and then reigning with Christ. Then the resurrection to perfection. Then the fullness of joy. Then the fullness of salvation. How foolish that looks to the world. In the second century, an opponent, a Roman elite named Lucian, an opponent of Christianity, said this, The poor wretches have convinced themselves first and foremost that they are going to be immortal and live for all time, in consequence of which they despise death and even willingly give themselves into custody, most of them. (laughs) What are you Christians doing? They're fools. Neglecting the glory of the Roman Empire and that which could be had by submission to this great human kingdom? They would deny it all and suffer and lose it for the sake of some empty promise that they will inherit something better? That's essentially what he was saying. Yet we would agree more with the words of that missionary who gave his life, who said, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what what he cannot lose. Right? Only those who don't know the promise of God would say what the critics say. Only those who don't know the reality of Christ because they cannot see what we see. 
and they cannot know what we know. Lastly, he endured the suffering because he loved those who were given to him by the Father. Verse 24. He says this in verse 24. He himself bore our sin in his body upon the tree in order that dying to sins we should live to righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. He loved us. He loved us. He entrusted himself to the Father and part of that entrusting himself to the Father and in his plan and his promise is that he would receive a people, those whom the Father had given to him, he loved and he loved them to the end and he loved them completely. That means, beloved, if you belong to Christ, he endured it because he loved you. Because he loved you. And he provided atonement for your sin. Paul was amazed by this love. He says in Galatians 2.20, The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Can you finish it? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what motivated him. Now, in this particular sense, Christ's death is unique. Only Christ's death could provide atonement for sin and can make countless believing sinners righteous. By the obedience of the one, as Paul said, bring many sons to glory, make many righteous. So this aspect of Christ's suffering cannot be imitated by Christians. And you go, that's obvious. Well, not to everyone. Sometimes you'll hear the term imadio Christi. In other words, the imitation of Christ, which for some means that I have to model his suffering. There's a guy down in South America somewhere who bear, he's crucified. I think he does it every year. He's crucified. He's, why? He's following the example of Christ, right? Carry my cross around the road. That's not what he means. Rather, we follow his example in this way when we follow his righteous response of trust and submission to the will of God. That's the example we follow. We can't follow his atoning work. Only he can do that. But we can follow his trust in the Father. But the point to notice is that he did this for us. His suffering was for our redemption because he loved the Father and he loved those given to him by the Father. And so he says, he bore our sins in his body on the cross or upon the tree. That means the punishment for our guilt, the punishment for our offenses, he endured the judgment for them. The consequence of our sin, he bore himself to accomplish our salvation. Why? Out of some sort of stoic duty? No, because he loved us. Because he loved us. Because the Father loved us. Because the Father had set his love on those who were his before the foundation of the world. And he endured it. It says here the cross, and that's well enough. Literally, it's on a tree, and that is only important in this sense to, to make that note because it picks up on the language of Deuteronomy 22. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That was the consequence in the law. So this is highlighting this language in a very graphic way that he was on that cross, as Paul said to the Corinthians, made sin. He was placed there as the embodiment of the one who would bear the curse of sin. He was cursed, as it were, upon the tree for us. Galatians 3.13. And this, again, would have been a particular encouragement to these slaves, because as you'll remember, the cross was reserved only for non-citizens and only for Roman slaves. And he's writing to Roman slaves as a, again, his primary audience. And they would have heard that and been encouraged that he died this ignoble death that, that only I could bear in this Roman government, and he did it for me to bear my sin as my substitute? What a powerful example that was. 
And his suffering on our behalf, his bearing our sins in his body on the cross, had two effects. And this this is important to understand. We are saved because we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. We are in union with Christ. His righteousness is not a righteousness that we just received in a moment. Our justification is a decision. It's a legal declaration. It's a righteousness imputed to us in terms of our standing. Yes, but Christ forever lives as our righteousness. We are covered by his righteousness. And the goal of the cross was not merely that we would be or be granted escape from hell, the goal of the cross is that we would be conformed to the image of him who is our example and is our savior. And so he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's talking about here a righteous life. Now let's just jump, and I'm only going to mention it because we have to end here. He says, for... You were straying like sheep. This is the mandate. That we then, in expression of this faith, in expression of this righteousness, expression of our, our repentance and our ones who have turned to follow Christ wherever he leads, we have this mandate. Verse 25, for you were straying as sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. In short, you wandered aimlessly and foolishly in this world, in your sin. You were dead, you were ignorant, you were darkened, you were sons of wrath, you were children of wrath. You had vanity that was the banner over your life and condemnation. And yet, through the sin-bearing death of Christ, through the hope and the grace offered in him, You have turned to trust in God's work and you have yielded your life to him who is the shepherd, the guardian, the overseer of your soul. This is speaking then of repentance. This is repentance. And the one who does not come to Christ in true repentance and thinks that I can somehow take Christ merely as my Savior, merely as the one who allows me to not worry about future condemnation while I can live and pursue my pleasure here, is to be deceived. When we come unto Christ, and the authority is part of the idea here, when we come to Christ, we come bending and yielding our will to His. In other words, we don't decide right and wrong. He tells us what's right and wrong. We don't decide which way is left and right. He tells us which way is left and right. It's submission, but it's not submission to a tyrant. It's not submission to a cruel taskmaster. It is submission to the one who has not only redeemed us, but is described in the most endearing terms of the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. He is the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. And we live under his rule. We live under glad submission to him. Of course, that's a... Shepherd is a picture of God in the Old Testament. It's applied to Christ. We won't look at all those. He's the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, not only by his divine nature, but by his work of redemption and his role as our resurrected redeemer. He has redeemed us. He has loved us. He has suffered for us. And he is the sympathetic Lord who guides us, who shepherds us, who guards us, who protects us. By his wounds, he said, you were healed. He is a tender master. How can we and why should we endure righteous suffering? Because Christ suffered for us. 
Because Christ has borne our sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might live in conformity to his example and to his life by the power of the Spirit which he has given to us, which includes obedience, submission, and trust in him and the Father, trust in his wisdom, trust in his character, trust in his promises, and that he'll bring about our salvation and justice to this world in his own timing. So William Barclay summed it up well, and this is, we'll end. He said this, God is the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. In his love, he cares for us. In his power, he protects us. And in his wisdom, he guides us in the right way. Let me go ahead and pray with me, please. And then we'll sing a, very quickly a closing hymn. My Father, I pray that if there are any here who have not trusted in you, any here who think of Christianity merely as a religion, or a safe house for them to live in the way that they want. Or if there are any here who say, I'll follow you as long as it provides a basis for morality, but not when it requires from me self-denial and suffering. That they would consider the example of Christ. And they would see that simply is not a category that you allow. To come to Christ is to trust him fully, and to trust him completely, and oh, we fail But we grieve over those failures as we continue to pursue righteousness. I pray that you would, even this morning, maybe bring some who haven't yet made that step of faith and that step of repentance and trust. For the rest of us, help us to meditate much on you, Christ, and your glory, your wonderful example, and our inheritance in you and every sure promise that is given to us and is yes and amen in you, Christ, our mediator, our Lord our example, and our shepherd. We commit our lives to you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.